yourself sit comfortably. Well, it's a pleasure to be back here Monday night after being away for this past month. I know that for those who attend more regularly, you had Lama Polden and Yvonne Rand and Nina Wise. You had a number of wonderful women teachers. And I was in this month um, just several hundred yards or more up the road at the residential retreat that we hold practice period of um, two-month silent retreat, teaching the month of March, um, which ended on last Friday and was uh, really quite a blessing to be a part of. And as for those of you who came on Monday nights, even as you sat here, you could hear the bells ringing up there as people were sitting and walking. But one of the things that I wanted to do on returning here Monday night with you was to maybe try to bring a little of the energy of that retreat back down to this uh, gathering. Um, and so tonight, um, I'll give a talk that I gave as the last uh, Dharma teaching at that retreat. Um, we've had, over the course of years in here, many different teachings, some systematic teachings from the uh, Buddha on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, or the Four Noble Truths, or the Eightfold Path, Right Speech, and Right Livelihood, and Wise Effort, and so forth. Um, or sometimes very practical things about how to live from a spiritual understanding in the midst of a complex world. Um, tonight I'd like to speak about enlightenment. And in part, um, this particular talk or set of teachings came because near the end of our two-month retreat, people had been sitting and walking in silence. And even though they struggled in all kinds of memories and plans and emotions and pleasures and joys and sorrows and so forth came and went in the course of that, you know, you get very silent and then huge storms would arise. Um, um, if you looked at them from the outside, and you didn't talk to them as I did in interviews, so I knew what was going on, it looked like a room full of Buddhas. Everyone was sitting there quietly and smiling. Um, and in fact, they looked younger and younger. By the end of the retreat, I don't know if you could package it, but all those creams and the things that you read about in the, you know, the magazines that will kind of rejuvenate you, I can't tell you. It was like layers of years of tension and holding and and contraction that gradually released from people. And when they walked out, they were like babies again. It was such a beautiful thing, quite radiant. It was lovely. This is a good ad for the retreat, huh? <laughs> um, but what brought the talk about was someone raised their hand in the last week, the morning of the retreat, to and asked Anna Douglas, Anna, is enlightenment a myth? And Anna, who was teaching it, said, no, enlightenment is not a myth, and talked for a few minutes in that question period. Um, so then I begin with a story for you, and we'll talk about enlightenment. This is from a book called The Magic Monastery. And you go to the Magic Monastery when you're fed up with your own monastery <laughs> to see if you can find some better answers, right? I'm a monk myself. And when I couldn't stand it at my own monastery any longer, I went to the magic monastery. And I met the guest master there and brought my question. Uh, what I wanted to know simply is, what does it mean to be a monk or a nun? So I asked, and for an answer, I got a most peculiar question. Do you mean in the daytime or at night? 
Now what could that mean? When I didn't answer, he picked it up again. A monk, like everyone else, is a creature of expansion and contraction. During the day, he or the nun, she is contracted behind his cloister walls, dressed in a robe like all the others, doing the routine things you expect a monk to do. At night, he expands. The walls cannot contain him. He moves throughout the world and he touches the stars. Oh, I thought, such nice poetry. But to bring him back down to earth, I began to ask, well, during the day, in his real body, does he, at which point the guest master interrupted, well, he said, that's the difference between you and us. You people regularly assume that the contracted state is the real body. It is real in a sense. But here we tend to start from the other end, the expanded state. The daytime state we refer to as the body of fear. And whereas you tend to judge a monk or a nun by their decorum during the day, we tend to measure the monks or nuns by the number of persons they touch at night and the number of stars. Many of the Buddhists, Buddhist texts begin with a phrase that is a reminder to us all. O nobly born, O you who are listening, who are the sons and daughters of the Buddha. O nobly born, O you children, the daughters and sons of the Buddha, do not forget who you really are. You may be caught at times in the body of fear, but do not take that to be the reality. O nobly born, it goes on, sons and daughters of the noble family, remember the clear light, the pure, clear white light from which everything in the universe arises, to which everything in the universe returns, the original nature of your own heart and mind, the natural state, unmanifest. Let go into this clear light, trust it, merge with it. It is your own true nature, it is home. There is freedom for the heart, what's called the sure heart's release. There is liberation, there is awakening, there is nirvana. Now what does nirvana mean? Someone came to the Buddha at one point and said to him, do you teach annihilation? I've heard about this nirvana And the literal meaning of nirvana is the going out of the fires. I hear you teach the going out of the fires. Does that mean the end of life? Do you teach annihilation? And the Buddha said, yes, I teach annihilation, but not in the way you understand, my friend. I teach annihilation only in one sense. Annihilation of greed, annihilation of hatred, and annihilation of delusion. And so here are the texts in which the Buddha speaks. This truly is the heart's highest peace, namely the fading away of craving and grasping, the extinction of greed, hatred, and delusion, the end of suffering. For ordinary people, enraptured with greed, enraged with anger, blinded by delusion, overwhelmed with mind and heart ensnared, They aim at their own ruin, or the ruin of others, or the ruin of both, and thus they experience mental pain and grief and physical pain and grief. But if greed, hatred, and delusion are abandoned, released, then one aims neither at their own ruin, nor at the ruin of others, nor of the ruin of both, and frees themselves from the sorrows of this world, Thus is nirvana immediate, visible, inviting, attractive. For those who are wise to be found in this very life, the end of greed, hatred, and delusion, this and this alone indeed is called nirvana. And for a disciple thus freed, in whose heart dwells peace, there is nothing to be added to what has been done. Naught more remains for them to do just as a rock of one solid mass remains unshaken by the wind, 
Even so, neither forms or sounds, odors, tastes, or contact, neither desired nor undesired, can cause such a one to waver. Steadfast is their mind, and gained is deliverance. And for one who's considered all the contrasts on this earth, and is no longer disturbed by anything whatsoever, this the peaceful one, freed from rage, from sorrow, from conflict, has passed beyond birth and beyond decay. And someone else comes to speak to the Buddha. And they said, how can we practice in such a way that we transcend death? Or they put it more poetically, how does one practice so as not to be seen by the king of death? And the Buddha replies, truly, my friend, there is a reality where there is neither solid nor fluid, heat nor motion, neither this world nor any other world, not sun nor moon. And this I call neither arising nor passing away, neither standing still nor being born nor dying. Beyond this whole sense of self is this to be found, where there is neither foothold nor development nor any basis. And awakening to this reality, the unborn, the unoriginated, the uncreated, and the undying. This is the end of all sorrow in this world. So those are some of the Buddhist texts that speak about liberation. It comes from the Anguttara Nikaya and the Sanyutta Nikaya. And they speak in two different languages. One as the absence of the forces of greed, of grasping, of hatred and aversion to anything in this world, and of delusion, of taking oneself to be separate from anything else, of this delusion of I. Or the other language which speaks <coughs> of the deathless or the timeless, that when we no longer are identified with this as who we are, we can rest in a reality of pure awareness, pure consciousness, pure knowing that is not limited by all the events that rise and pass and that we would ordinarily take as something to judge or be in conflict with. Now one of the teachers that I studied with in India who wasn't even a Buddhist teacher, he was an Advaita Vedanta Hindu teacher named Nisargadat, Sri Nisargadat, a disciple of Ramana Maharshi. There are a series of collected dialogues in one of the most wonderful Dharma books in the English language uh, called I Am That of Srinath Sargadat. And he mostly sat there in this little apartment in Bombay. We'd go and there were 20 or 25 of us in this kind of slum in Bombay. And he, he had a little stand where he sold cigarettes when he was a kind of merchant. And then he gave that up and became a, a yogi and then he became a teacher. And he would sit there, he was an old man by then, and people from around the world would come and have dialogues with him. And the only thing that he talked about was the deathless and the timeless. People would raise their hands, they'd come in, various Westerners, and they'd say, well, tell me, Maharaj, they called him, tell me about God. And he said, God, pff, nothing. So what do you mean God? Isn't realization of God the same as the Dharma realization? And he would look back, and he said, see this world, the gods have created this world. The gods also sustain this world, and then the gods destroy this world, and then there's another world, and worlds come and worlds go. He said, but where the gods come and where the, where the gods go has nothing to do with me. They cannot touch me. They're only part of this world, and who I am is beyond birth and death, beyond time and creation. So let the gods play if they will. It has nothing to do with me. And then someone would raise their hand and say, but Maharaj, aren't you afraid to die? And you're an old man. What do you think about dying? He said, I beg your pardon. You accuse me of having been born. I do not accept this accusation. This is merely a meat body, he said. This is the food body. It has nothing to do with me whatsoever. This body and mind, they have no, they have no reality to someone such as me. I never took birth. How can you accuse me of such a thing? So then people would ask him questions. There were these kind of dialogues. When I ask you a question and you answer, what exactly happens? And he replied, the question and answer both appear on the screen. The lips move, 
the body speaks, and again the screen is clear and empty. When you say clear and empty, what do you mean? I mean free of all contents. To myself I am neither perceivable nor describable. There's nothing I can point to and say, this is what I am. You, you identify yourself with everything so easily. I find this impossible. The reality that I am not this or that, not anything, is mine, is so strong that as soon as something appears, there comes at the same time a knowing this is not who I am. Do you mean you spend your time saying, this is not me? I mean, I don't understand. Don't you, you know, are you, are you not the, the, neither the object nor the subject that when we talk, am I not the object of your experience and you the one who knows it? He laughed. He said, look, my thumb touches my forefinger. Both touch and are touched. When my attention is on the thumb, the thumb is the feeler, myself, and the forefinger is something I'm feeling. Then I switch the, switch the, reverse the attention. Now the finger is who I am and the thumb is what I'm feeling. Shift your focus of attention and the relationship reverses. I have discovered that by shifting the focus of attention, I become the very thing I look at and experience the consciousness it has. I become the inner witness of the thing. I call this capacity of entering other points of consciousness love. You may give it any name you like. Love says, I am everything. Wisdom says, I am nothing. Between these two, my life flows. At any point in time and space, I could be both the subject or the object. I express it by saying, I am both and neither and truly beyond. And in this great dark space, there is only one movement, the movement of love. So this is someone who is teaching about the timeless, not as so much the end of greed, hatred, and delusion, but as the Buddha said, resting in the unborn, resting in the pure awareness that doesn't take anything arises to be me or mine. And in fact, I remember, because somebody said, well, do you ever get angry? You know, how enlightened is this guy anyway? Do you ever get upset? Does things ever bother you? And he said, oh, I can get impatient if I'm waiting for a meal and the food isn't served on time, or if you're all chanting, which we would do, and uh, even though we don't have to do chanting, we do it, and then you're not chanting properly. <laughs> he said, but the impatience arises, or the difficulties appear and disappear, and they have nothing to do with me. So what is this enlightenment? I actually prefer to put an S on it and talk about enlightenments, plural, when you add S to things, they become a lot more workable. If you say there is only Jehovah, that's God, it's kind of a problem, right? Or there's only Allah, that's God, all the other ones don't count. But if you put an S and talk about the gods and the forms of gods, and there's Krishna and Radha and Shiva and Jehovah and Allah and etc. And in the same way, one description of enlightenment is the end of grasping, greed, the end of hatred and aversion, the end of all identification and delusion. Another description is the shift of identity that is available to every human being. Not to take this monkey mind. I mean, you sit in meditation, you just sat, you saw it, didn't you? Come on. Anybody not see that? Raise your hand. I don't believe you, right? You see the monkey mind. Is that who you are? I hope not. You know, well, then maybe I'm this food body. But it keeps changing, doesn't it? It grows old and stuff. You, if you actually were that and you'd say, stop, if it actually belonged to you, you could tell it not to grow old. Good luck. So a shift of identity to not take this mind and heart and body to be who we are. Or the enlightenment that is called moment-to-moment nirvana. For Zen Master Suzuki Roshi, who talked about it, there is no enlightened retirement. He said, what we're after is one moment of enlightenment after another. And his great realization, Suzuki Roshi's great realization, that he described, he said, one day when I was in my temple and I was meditating, and I discovered that nothing can ever be repeated. 
take this in, that nothing can ever be repeated. And what that means is that in every moment, the world is born anew. If you really understand that, you are free. Beginner's mind. Buddhadasa, one of my teachers, puts it this way. Forest monk in the Malay Peninsula. He said, anyone can see that if grasping and aversion were with us all day and night without ceasing, who could ever stand this life? Under that condition, living things would either die or become insane. Instead, we survive because there are natural periods of coolness, of wholeness and ease. In fact, they last longer than the fires of our grasping and fear. It is this that sustains us. We each have periods of rest, making us refreshed, alive, at peace. Why don't we feel thankful for this everyday nirvana? Moment to moment nirvana. Zen Master Suzuki Roshi. One student repeated something to Zen Master Suzuki Roshi that he'd heard in a lecture, and Suzuki Roshi shook his head. No, said the student, but you said just that. When I said it, it was true, Suzuki answered. <laughs> when you said it, it wasn't. <laughs> Here he says again, we should find perfect existence or perfect peace in the midst of imperfection. When we realize the everlasting truth that everything changes and find our composure in it, we find ourselves in nirvana. This world is constantly moving. It is like a river or a stream. When we find our composure in the reality of change, this is nirvana. Now, what leads to these enlightenments? The process sometimes is spoken about as purification. The purification of action, where instead of acting out of greed and hatred and delusion, there's a quality of compassion or virtue where we stop our greed and our anger, we stop harming others and stop harming ourselves because we're not so identified with that. Or a purification of the mind or the heart. And in meditation, we just sat, it means learning to sit with what is so. And you could say, let it go, but Americans don't understand that very well because it sounds like getting rid of things. So a better language is to sit with it and let it be. To accept what is so and let it release its hold on the heart, on our identity. And gradually, even in the course of that 40 minutes of sitting, this storm comes, he did and she did, and this happened, and I'm upset about that. And you see the whole leela, the whole dance, and you go, well, I really got upset in that one, didn't I? And in that moment, it's as if we lose that identification and become the space within which that dance happens. It loses its hold on us. And one one really understands when one tastes even a moment of that freedom. Different traditions, it's called entering the stream, stream entry, the stream of the Dharma. And again, there are all different ways that describe stream entry. My teacher Ajahn Chah said, if you've lived in this monastery for six months and been practicing and you haven't tasted stream entry, you've been wasting your time. And what he meant was, if you, in the course of six months in the monastery of sitting and walking and meditation and serving and talking to people and, you know, eating and so forth, if you haven't come to the place to see that this body and this mind is not ours, come to that place even for a moment to release your hold on this small sense of self and rest in this pure mindful attention where everything is born and everything disappears like clouds in space. If you haven't seen this, you've missed the boat. This is the freedom that's there for you. These things that come and go, 
They are not who I am. Who are you really? Are you your thoughts, your feelings, your body, or the one who knows? And even in the one who knows, is it one who knows? Or maybe if you look, is it just the pure knowing without anyone to own it? In Dzogchen practice, and one Dzogchen Lama came to visit my teacher Ajahn Chah in the forest and listened to Ajahn Chah teach, and he said, oh, same teaching, same view. It's very interesting. I'm not saying whether they're the same or not, I'm just quoting this Lama. You'll have to figure that out for yourself. But from that point of view, in the Tibetan form of pointing to who I really am or to the nature of mind, it's not that you work and work and work to get enlightened. In a moment, you look and you realize, this is not who I am. And then the rest of your spiritual life is to fulfill that understanding, to really embody it. But there are other descriptions. There are retreat centers where I practice and ways to practice where you go into very, very deep concentration and you dissolve the body and mind until you become a field of light and vibrations. You pay such deep attention that wherever your attention goes, a sound, a sight, a smell, a sensation breaks up into earth, air, fire, and water, and then just play a vibration in the heart. So still do you get. And then you realize what I am is vibrations, but they're always changing. I'm the field of energy, and yet not that either, something beyond. And there opens a freedom that the Buddha speaks of as nirvana. There are all kinds of gates. Three of the gates are the gate of suffering, the gate of impermanence, and the gate of emptiness. Sometimes you attain a freedom in your heart only through the grace of your suffering. Said suffering is grace when it brings you to that which is holy. And that which is holy is what cracks open your heart and lets you be free from this body of fear. And sometimes it takes a lot for us. So here's the Buddha on the peak in Raj gear, surrounded by a thousand monks and nuns, looking out and saying, all is burning, the fire sermon. What is burning, O monks and nuns? The eye is burning. The ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind, all are burning with greed and desire. All are burning with hatred and aversion. All are burning with delusion, ignorance, identification. Only when you see this can you let go and your heart be free. Now we're coming up, it's some weeks ahead yet, but we're coming up to the Easter time. So one of the people I interviewed in this book of interviews and spiritual life, various teachers, was a woman who'd done both Buddhist and Christian practice. And she was talking about her Easter retreat. She said, there I was in my little cell when I suddenly became overcome by sadness and pain. My body began to ache. I lay on my bed. I felt as if, as if I was dying and it felt so real. Sometimes in meditation, there's a level where you come, where the, where the archetype of death shows itself, and you see people as if you had died a thousand lifetimes in all the ways that you can die, because it shows itself because it's so much a part of us. And she was seeing this. I felt as if I was dying. I was taken over and began to weep for Jesus on the cross, for suffering and death, and then I became Mary, holding her crucified child, and I knew that the crucifixion wasn't over. And I was the starving mothers in Biafra who could not feed their children. I was the mother trapped in an earthquake in China, struggling desperately, unable to save her child. I was the young man, all the soldiers in the senseless wars. I was the cows and pigs on the way to the slaughterhouse. I was the modern generals and the Roman soldiers the welfare mothers and the slum lord, the racist and those who he hated. I was all those who would die, all who are in pain. I lay there watched over by the pain of the world so much, washed by it, I could hardly bear it. My heart wept. And then Jesus was there in my body and we were holding it together, the suffering of the world. 
and I could see that to hold it in mercy was divine. It broke my heart open. When I met the pain then, it was not my pain, but the holy pain that opens the heart. This is the purpose of our sorrows, to connect our hearts. There is so much mercy, mercy within mercy. So sometimes our liberation comes when we see this truth of this human realm and say yes, and we release all the struggle with it, you know, of how it's supposed to have been, and the heart just holds it as it is in compassion and offers our compassion to every being we meet. Sometimes we enter through the gate of emptiness, remember one person, teacher I interviewed, who said, I was on a retreat 14 years ago, and I can go to that retreat center and show you the exact place where I was doing my walking meditation, lifting my foot and placing it down on the earth. And there was a moment when I put my foot on the earth and I had this sudden realization, no one was doing it. It was just earth and foot and thought and consciousness and who I was was a whole story I told myself and I was nothing more than a story. And the whole sense of me dropped away. Here again, another different account of that kind. Where are we? One day, I wiped out all notions from my mind. It became quiet, finally. I gave up any desire for anything to be different. I discarded the words with which I thought. I rested in quietude. I felt a little queer, as if being carried into something, or as if I were touching some power unknown to me, and suddenly I entered. I lost the boundary of my physical body. I had my skin, of course, but I felt I was standing in the center of the cosmos. I spoke, but my words lost their meaning. I saw people coming toward me, but all were the same man. All were me. I had never known this before, this world. I believed I was created, but now I changed my whole opinion. I was never created. I was the cosmos, and no individual ever existed the gate of emptiness. And in a moment, you can be walking, and many of us have had this experience, and the whole sense of who we are shifts and drops away, and there is a holy perfection that things are as they are, and it's not about me and all the stories I've told myself since I was a child. You know those stories, who you are and how it all is. When Suzuki Roshi performs a wedding, when he used to, marriage ceremony, he used to say this beautiful thing. He would look at them and he would say to the groom, you have married the perfect wife. And then he would turn to the bride and he would say, and you have married the perfect husband. There is a moment that we all know of waking up and realizing that things are as they are and that there is a perfection in that, beyond any imagination that we have about how it should be. It's fantastic. Now, some people at this point might raise their hands and say, yeah, that's all cool, but what if none of that stuff happens to me, you know? Here I am, I'm doing my meditation, and you know, that's a great idea, but nothing happens to me young monk asked the master, however can I get emancipated? And the master looked him in the eye and answered, and whoever has put you in bondage? <laughs> so one of the interviews in this book, I asked these different teachers questions. I said, tell me what was the hardest thing in your spiritual life? Here I am, a teacher for hundreds and hundreds of students, some of whom experience powerful meditative openings but that has not been my way. For a long time, this was the hardest thing for me to accept, that in my practice, nothing happened. 
I'm not a person with big dramatic experiences. For 30 years now, it's been simply a process of practicing without being caught by my ideas of discouragement or success. I would go for months of intensive training in India or in the West, and no spectacular experience would happen. This was especially hard for the first 10 or 15 years. (laughs) But at least I never got trapped into believing I was some special spiritual person. Yet somehow something did change. What most transformed me were the endless hours of mindfulness, giving a caring attention to what I was doing. I learned that the inner dropping of burdens was not going to happen for me all in one piece, but again and again. I simply dropped the burden of judgments, of my fear, of distrust of myself, of contraction in the body. At some point I discovered how automatically tightness and grasping would come, and with that realization I started letting go, opening to an appreciation of life, finding an ease. The traditional teaching slowly dawned on me that in reality there is neither coming nor going, and that from the ground of our being nothing ever really happens and nothing ever will. Seeing this was like a confirmation. I became less serious, less concerned about myself. My kindness deepened. Oddly enough, my friends tell me I've become more like myself. They say there's been a very big change in me, but it wasn't produced by any special event. I guess it was just the fruit of being present over and over. It's that simple. And each of these ways describes a shift of identity a freeing of the heart, a release of the illusion of what we hold to be and get and gain. So simple, in a moment. As you practice, those of you who've been meditating for some time, and a number of you have been here, if you pay attention, you'll discover that each of you is actually getting more free. It's really true. Your grief comes, your loneliness, your fear, your pain, your judgments, and somehow you get more spacious and you say, oh, there's the judging mind again. I know you. Oh, there's fear. There's less resistance. And there's a greater sense that we can rest halfway between heaven and earth in this form, O nobly born as the Buddha, and let the dance of life move through us. And this is your treasure. You know this, you've had these moments, many of you. It is the greatest treasure in the changing conditions of this world. So when Anna was asked, is enlightenment a myth? All the teachers went back to our teacher's room and we started to talk. How would you answer that question? We talked about all these different levels. And then we began to talk about the enlightened teachers that we were with, that we admired. Sister Dipankara, this wonderful Burmese nun who came through here, this young Burmese nun, who was enlightened listening to the sounds in her eardrums and the, the, the light as it touched her retina and dissolve, talked about dissolving the body into vibrations. And Robert, was, Robert Hall was talking about this guru he went to see in India who just looked him in the eyes so deeply and loved him in a way he had never been loved in his whole life. In that moment, he said, all the things I was trying to be and get and prove, it just fell away. What's the problem? (laughs) Or Krishna Barua, this wonderful woman from India who came to teach, who was just the most ordinary kind of person. I used to go and take her shopping when she wasn't teaching the retreat. She was so ordinary, but then she would sit in meditation and, and describe the universe and the mind and all the parts of the mind and the heart and how they work together like a kind of chemistry professor. There's this and this and this. And you could tell she was feeling it and from this huge space of openness. We've had the privilege, as those of us who are kind of Dharma professionals like myself, (laughs) of hanging out with enlightenment in so many different forms. So I'll tell a few more stories tonight just to invite their presence into the room. And I'll, I'll continue with the women. I'll talk about Deepama, my teacher um, from Calcutta. Partly because women are kind of shortchanged in the Enlightenment literature, you know. For some reason, they only wanted to write about the guys. You know that story, the whole patriarchal number. But anyway, actually the women were the enlightened ones who were feeding the guys, hoping they'd get enlightened sometime so they could, you know, have a real connection. But anyway. Um, so Deepama whose manifestation of the Dharma was both 
love and dedication. And she was the, she was the greatest yogi trained in Burma by some of our teachers. Um, she had all, accomplished all the samadhi states and with them all the jhanas and all the insight stages and, and all kinds of psychic power. So Manindra, who was one of my teachers, he said, yeah, when I was training Deepama, I said, you know, you don't have to come to your interview in the ordinary way anymore now that you've done the jhanas on space and time and so forth. Why don't you just make this resolution and disappear in your little hut there and appear um, spontaneously in front of me and we'll do an interview. So he said that's how she used to come to her interviews. It was time and all of a sudden this form was like beam me up Scotty, right? <laughs> this form would just appear and we'd have our little interview and then she would disappear and go back to her, her meditation. But she started because her child died and her husband died in an epidemic and she got so sick that she had to, she couldn't walk to the meditation center. She had to crawl up the steps of the meditation center. But she was so desperate to find a way to live in this world that was free. And when she would come and teach, um, she expected us to be dedicated like she was. But she was so loving about it. It wasn't a push. She would, she would do whatever it took to love you enough so that you would go and be free like she was. Um, Jack Engler, who went to do interviews, he's a psychologist at Harvard of enlightened teachers in India, he gave the thematic apperception test, the TAT, which is this group of ten pictures. They're sort of ambiguous. There's a woman at a doorway kind of looking like, oh, maybe she's just their man at a table. She's just leaving and they just got divorced, you know, and it's sad. Or maybe she just came back and she's going to tell them good news and you're just asked to tell a story. Well, so he showed these pictures to Deepama, and she was the only person he could find in the, all the psychological records who wove all ten pictures together into a Dharma tale about how you could get enlightened. <laughs> and then he went back and he looked at the psychological literature. No one ever done that except one shaman in the Amazon who did the same kind of thing. An incredible yogi. So her, and she would hug you if you really needed it. I mean, I was a teacher and I was going through a hard time at one point. I visited her in Calcutta and she said, you have to go back and teach. And she said, here, let me give you some special energy. And she hugged me for about 10 minutes, Bengali's hug, and patted my cheeks and blessed me. And, you know, Suki Hoto gave me the kind of Pali recitation of loving kindness. And I'm standing there, I was having a hard time. And I'm starting to smile and smile and smile and smile. <laughs> and then I go out and I go through the streets of Calcutta and it's hot and it's noisy and it's crowded and I have to go to the airport. Dum Dum Airport's the airport in Calcutta. That's its name, right? <laughs> Two and a half hours through the crowded streets and then Indian customs. Oh my God. You know, and then the plane is late. Soon coming, but not soon enough. You know, and this whole... <laughs> And then on the airplane, and then through customs in Bangkok, in this whole traffic jam in Bangkok, hours and hours and hours of just noise and struggle and so forth. And I am grinning. I can't stop smiling. It's like I am so stoned for like 36 hours. I don't know what she did. Or there's Amachi. This wonderful Indian saint, some of you know Amachi, the hugging guru, and she'll have 2,000 people, and she goes in a trance and becomes the Divine Mother, and then one at a time, 2,000 people, one at a time, they're there, come and rest your head in Mama's lap. It's fantastic. Dedication and love. Or sometimes it comes as power, like His Holiness Karmapa, the 16th Karmapa, who I met at the airport when he first came to the West in Boston. I was part of the Naropa and Vajradhatu Trumpasin, and they said, come and meet this monk. And I saw him get off the airport, and I've seen so many monks as a monk. I said, oh, another fat monk, you know. <laughs> he looks kind of jolly, but that's all right. And, and I went up, and I did a little bow to him, and he took my head, and he pushed it down to the floor. It was so much for hubris, you know. Same thing happened to Robert. And then I got up, and I looked him in the eye, and it was very wonderful. Like, this is a really a deep, amazing place, like pools. And then I backed away, it was other people's turns, and I got about 10 feet away, and all of a sudden I felt like I'd gone to Greenland or something, that around him was this field of such warmth, of compassion, that you could just, like, you could just bathe in it. And I stepped out of it, and all I wanted to do was go up and hold on to his robes after that. <laughs> then he did the black hat ceremony, he has this crown that was given him a thousand years ago by the Emperor of China. And when he places it on his head, he becomes the Bodhisattva of infinite compassion. And I've never seen such sadness in these eyes. It's as if he looks at every suffering being in the world. And then he takes it off and he turns into a big baby again. You know, plays with whatever comes. 
incredible power. Or sometimes it's emptiness, Mahasi Saida who came, who is Mr. Empty. Nobody there. The wind will blow it all away. You know, and he had this Burmese fan. In fact, he put a lot of people off who were waiting to see this enlightened teacher. And he came and he was so still and had so little to say about anything except suffering and the end of suffering. And when he would, would start to smile, he put up his fan. Because in, in Burma, it isn't polite to kind of make for an enlightened teacher to make a big show of themselves. So, so he would, and some people said, I don't want to end up enlightened like that. I think I'm going to find some other tradition. But actually, he was transparent. He was so empty. He was just like the sky. It was really beautiful. But then those of you who know Ajahn Jamnian, who comes here every year, who's a teacher in the same Theravada tradition, instead of emptiness, we're talking fullness here. There's medallions and, and, and Buddhas, and he's got, you know, 50 pounds of tchotchkes hanging on his robe, you know, and he's doing exorcisms, and he's the shaman, and he's working with chakras, and he's the peacemaker for the war in his area, and he's the loving-kindness monk. And, and it's, he's like all abundance, where Mahasi Sada was empty, he's just full of everything, and he goes around. And um, I, I remember somebody asked him, do you ever get angry? He says, no, nothing happens to me, nothing happens at all. He says, empty, empty, happy, happy, empty, empty, happy, happy. If you bring me food, great, I eat, I can teach Dharma, full of energy. If no one brings me food, oh, so good, I need to diet, excellent, you know. If people take me, show me around San Francisco, good, I see all the sights, I can learn to teach more. If nobody takes me around, oh, so good, I meditate in silence. <laughs> Whatever happens, no problem. Empty, empty, happy, happy. Yeah. Or then there's Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, 2,000, 3,000 people here, and we're all sitting and meditating and listening to the bell and trying to be mindful and, you know, all out here. And then Thich Nhat Hanh comes out, it's his day, and he walks out. And the guy is so mindful, he picks up one foot and put it sit down, and it's like everything in the world is there with him as he places his foot on the earth. And as he walks over, all 2,500 people, consciousness change, and they become so present because of the way he takes a step, or drinks his tea, or, or holds an orange. I and mean, the way certain teachers teach is not so much by their words, but just the way they open the door. So he's Mr. Mindfulness. That's his way. So mindful of everything, joy and sorrow. And I remember one time he was teaching at Green Gulch, a retreat that some of us as teachers were part of. And I saw him, I was sitting near him, and so forth. And he was teaching about breathing in and out, smiling um, with each breath, joy, letting the breath go out like the sky, sitting like the mountain, you know the kind of poems that he uses for meditation. But as I looked at him, I kept getting sadder and sadder. It's like he was teaching smile and joy, and I'm going, oh my God, I feel so much grief. So it was lunchtime, and I had lunch with him, and I said, Ty, I need to ask you something. I said, you're sitting there talking about breathing and smiling and so forth, and I'm with you, and I just feel so much sadness and so much grief. And what I want to know, you know how it is, what I want to know, is that me, just projecting it on you? Or am I picking something up? Because that's what it felt like. Is it something about you? And he looked at me with very sad eyes, and he said, I have seen so much suffering in this world. That is why I have to teach joy. I have to do it. And my practice is to be mindful of that. So mindfulness of everything, of the steps of joy, of sorrow. Or the Dalai Lama, we could go on and on talking about these wonderful beings, but here's the Dalai Lama in Dharamsala, and I've had the privilege of being there and part of different meetings where he will spend time with us and so forth. Every morning after he does three hours of his own meditations and bows and prayers and so forth, first thing he will do then when he comes out is greet the Tibetans who've walked over the mountains and are refugees arriving that day, because some of them, they risk their lives to escape Tibet, and the one thing many of them want before they die is to be in the presence of His Holiness. It is so important to them. And so the first thing, He will greet them one at a time and listen to their stories. 
and they are the, ter the most terrible stories of torture and imprisonment and the destruction of villages and families. And every morning after his meditation, this is what the Dalai Lama hears when he's there. Each person, and he greets with so much attention. He gives, it's like there's only one person in the world, the person that he's speaking to. And then he goes back and he does a little bit more practice and he says, if I can't be happy, what good is the Dharma? They have destroyed our monasteries, they have burned our text, they have taken away the religious freedom in the culture, they have killed a million Tibetans, they have taken so many things, why should I let them take my peace of mind also? And so he comes back and there is this sense of freedom and joy even after that morning's sorrows. If you can't be happy, what good is this liberation? And it's so beautiful because when he was here, you know, there were 80 people from the State Department, Secret Service, because they're worried about there had been assassination attempts on him in different parts of the world. Things, so they really want to protect him. And people were saying, why do you need all these Secret Service and things like that? But I tell you, the Secret Service were completely stoked to be with the Dalai Lama. All these young, <laughs> beefy young guys with their guns and whatever, you know, hanging out. And in the end, they all wanted their picture taken with the Dalai Lama. <laughs> and he's signing the pictures away and they'd say, you know, or even the older ones, I've done, you know, I've done, you know, Prince Charles and I've done the Pope and I've done, but this is it. This is the best. I'm so happy I've done, you know, and, and the Dalai Lama, he stayed in the hotel. And after he was finished staying in the hotel, um, before he left doing the teachings, he said, please bring in the staff, bring in the cooks and the people who clean the rooms and the people who wash and the floors and vacuum, the whole hotel staff. And he had them line up and he went down there, line one person at a time, and he thanked them each for taking care of him. And that changed some of those people's lives to have the Dalai Lama do that. What compassion. Or Ajahn Chah, my teacher, I'll just do one more, <laughs> who is the exemplar of wisdom the laughter of the wise. He had this wonderful sense of humor. But underneath it all, he could do that because he said, our practice is to see things as they really are. You want them to be different? Isn't that nutty? I mean, this is the way they actually are. Look at all the stories you make about how the world is supposed to be. And this doesn't mean one doesn't care for the world. He's not being callous in that way. But to really care for the world, we have to see it as it is. And he said, I see so much suffering, people struggling in, with one another, and it's as if I'm on one shore, and they're all, they, they're struggling. And I say, why don't you come over? It's so beautiful here. You don't have to struggle. You don't have to suffer. Go around the monastery and look at people, you know, and if it looked like somebody was having a hard time, he'd go up to you and he'd say, are you suffering today? And if you said no, he said, oh, great, it's a beautiful day, isn't it? And if you said yes, he would laugh. He'd say, hmm, must be very attached. And then he'd laugh a little more and walk on. That was his whole teaching, right? If you're suffering, there's a cause, right? When he came to our center in Massachusetts, people were doing this sitting and walking meditation and retreat. And he said, you know, these Americans, they're very serious. They're very intent on their meditation practice. He looked around and he said, this is kind of like a, like a hospital, isn't it? <laughs> and then he went around out on the front lawn, he would walk up to people and he'd look at them and he'd say, I hope you get well soon. I hope you get well soon. You know? And it didn't matter. He would have rich people and poor people and people who were sick and people who were well and people with all kinds of experiences and people who were posturing and people who weren't. And he would just look at each person. Are you suffering? Or do you know that it's possible? Do you know that it's possible to be free? That simple. So you hear all these stories and you say, okay, I want this. Where should I go? You know, what should I do? How do I find this enlightenment? Mahasi Sayadaw would say, sit, go on a retreat. Sit and walk and sit and walk. Karmapa would say bow, maybe a hundred thousand to start with, or maybe a million of them, right? And bow until you are ready to bow to everything in the world. The Dalai Lama would say, if you want this enlightenment, offer your compassion to every being you meet. Ajahn Chah would say, it's simple. Let go 
Let go of wanting it to be any way other than it is. And then treat each moment with respect. Deepama would say dedication. It is your dedication, your intention, that will get you enlightened. And that in your loving kindness. Ajahn Jamian, he'd say, be happy. You want to be enlightened? Be happy. You can do it. Why not be happy? Suzuki Roshi would say, you already are enlightened. It is only your wish to be anywhere else other than where you are that is a difficulty. A woman told Suzuki Roshi she found it very difficult to mix Zen practice with the demands of being a homemaker. I feel like I'm trying to climb a ladder, but for every step upward, I slip backward two steps. Forget the ladder, Suzuki told her. When you're with enlightenment, everything is right here on the ground. Or Punja, I didn't even talk about him. One of the beautiful things about the people who went to be with Punja in India, there's another great teacher of James and Sylvia and Howie and other teachers here, is he really saw the beauty of people in front of him. He'd say, you understand, you already know. Let go of trying to be anywhere else. Be where you are. Rest in your true nature. What you seek is who you are, my friends. It is as if... Some, you were born into a noble family and someone tied into the hem of your garment hundreds of diamonds and precious jewels and you're going around the world as a beggar saying, feed me, give me something and you don't know in the hem of your own garment are all the riches you could possibly imagine. You don't have to go anywhere. You are what you seek. So James Barris, who asked Punja, after being with him for some days. He said, you know, in the Buddhist teachings, we don't have the teachings of grace, but here I am with a guru. We have the teachings of letting go and enlightenment and liberation and loving kindness and mindfulness. But grace, how do I know what I'm getting the grace of the guru? How will I know it? And Punja laughed. He said, you're asking about grace? You showed me a picture of your wife and daughter in Cal. You live in beautiful California. You're part of this meditation center. Um, you're, you live in connection with this big spiritual community. Now you've traveled to India. You're a young man. You're healthy. You're sitting with all these other seekers at the foot of the guru. You've been listening to teachings for days, and you're asking, where is the grace? You are neck deep in grace. He said, neck deep in grace. Or Ramana Maharshi, as he was dying, people went to him and said, Ramana, don't leave us, please don't leave us. And he looked at them bewildered, and he said, but where could I go? Where could I go? There is no going, and there is no coming. When we really let go to that place that we know in our heart is timeless. Ajahn Chah, my teacher, Someone asked him about his enlightenment. How do I prepare my mind for meditation? Am I enlightened? There's nothing special. I just rest where I am. They say, well then, are you, are fu- are you fully enlightened? Do I know? I'm like a tree full of leaves, blossoms, and fruit. Birds come to eat and to nest. People sit under the tree. Yet the tree does not know itself. It follows its nature. It is as it is. O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddha, those of you who have practiced have tasted this liberation. You know that there are moments when your heart has been free. Remember this. Rest in it. Trust it. It is a great treasure to you in all the changing circumstances of this world. And as the Buddha said, if it were not possible to free the heart from entanglement in greed, hatred, and delusion, I would not ask you to do so. But just because it is possible to free the heart from entanglement in greed, hatred, and delusion, do I offer you the teachings of the way. Let's sit for a minute.
O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddha, seated in this human incarnation halfway between heaven and earth, remember who you really are. Trust. Let go into your true nature. Remember, you can be free. So a few very brief announcements and a one-minute chant, and then we'll go out into this spring evening. If you've never done a retreat, even though it's not the only way, it's quite a wonderful way. And um, I encourage you to try that at some point. The announcements are this. First, um, there are a number of cars that are parked out on Sir Francis Drake Boulevard because people didn't carpool. We promised the county and the sheriff and so forth for safety reasons that we wouldn't park out on Sir Francis Drake Boulevard, that we would really have people come in here and park. So I'm sorry to say you have to do it. Please, there's carpooling information, and even if you're a little bit late, try to do that. That's, that's pretty important. Um, uh, the second thing is I may need a house sitter for five days um, from April uh, 11th, 11th through the 15th. If anyone is able to do that, you could come up for a moment and let me know. I, there's someone on staff who might do it, but they might not be able to. So anyone interested in house-sitting in Woodacre, let me know for five days. Um, and then the last is to say that a, a good friend of mine and a member of this community, um, Bill Kimpton, um, who'd done, done a lot of retreats and really changed his life from being very much entangled in the world to being a person of great... Um, uh, wisdom and, and uh, compassion and generosity over the years of his Dharma practice. He just died on Friday. Um, and so I want to both dedicate this talk to him wherever you are, Bill. May you remember who you really are. And I'd like us to do a, a simple chant of Om Mani Padmi Hum, which is a chant of universal compassion. We'll do it nine times. Um, and it's an offering to Bill and to every being, your friends who are in trouble, the people in lands or cities or prisons or circumstances whose heart needs to be reminded about compassion and liberation. Um, so we'll just offer that as our loving kindness. And then the last thing to say before we do the chant is I have some traveling ahead for myself. So for the next few weeks, you will have um, Ed Brown next week, wonderful Zen teacher. Then you will have Ken McLeod, who is a Tibetan Lama who did two, three-year, three-month retreats, one of the senior um, Western Tibetan Lamas in, to come out of Tibet, quite a wonderful teacher. Then I think you will have either Ajahn Pasano or Sister Sundra, one of the senior monks from Amravati, and then I'll be back the last Monday of uh, April and all the way through May and into early June. So our little chant. Om Mani Padme
of the heart that is who you really are. Thank you. Good night. Drive safely as you go out. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.